It's good to be back. You're going to get a bit less energy from me this time around, I'm sorry. But one of the happy coincidences of me doing the kids' talk the same morning I'm doing the regular talk, I guess, is that you know all the context for what I'm about to say. So that should shorten things a little bit this morning. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that the gospel arrived in Rome. And Father, because the gospel arrived in Rome, we know that it has gone out to the world. It has even gone to us today so that we can know Jesus. We're so thankful for those who have proclaimed the gospel to us in our lives and have been instrumental in that. I pray that as we dig into this chapter now, uh, you would prepare us, you'd soften our hearts, be ready to be shaped and transformed by that same gospel message. Amen. Well, when I first started work, I finished university, went into a full-time job. Uh, it, was, it was a very different world. I uh, didn't have to take any work home. You know, at uni, you do an assignment, some homework at night, but I got a nine-to-five, finished up at five, didn't know what to do with the rest of my evenings. But I was sitting at a desk all day, so I decided I should probably uh, spend some time getting into shape, you know, getting fit, uh, find something that'll keep me a bit active to kind of counteract sitting in a chair. So my brother invited me to take these self-defense classes. I thought, you know, why not? A chance to beat up my buffet brother. That sounds like a good idea. Uh, so I went along and it was good exercise, all right? You know, punching and kicking and running and stuff. Really good exercise. But it was also just a lot of fun. You know, learning uh, to defend punches and kicks and stuff. You know, the kind of thing that I never, ever, ever want to do in real life. But, you know, when it's in a safe space, it was pretty good. And there was, there was these really cool, complex moves that were really hard for me that I couldn't quite figure out. But they always landed back on these same basic moves. And so what the instructor did is because is he knew these basic moves were so important to whatever you're doing, we drilled them over and over and over again. Uh, every lesson would start with 10 to 15 minutes out of a 45-minute lesson just drilling these things over and over and over again. And if the instructors were in the mood for it, we'd finish in the last 15 minutes drilling them over and over and over and over again. And the idea was to develop reflexes so that if you are attacked, uh, thankfully I have yet to be attacked, but if I ever was attacked, I wouldn't have to think about what to do. It would just happen. You know, wow, punch you in the face, you're not going to get me, that kind of thing. And so it, it, it was a good idea to build these reflexes so that I wouldn't have to think, would be able to uh, think about other things while, you know, getting punched. Um, but there is a downside to building a self-defense reflex, isn't there? You know, if someone attacks me, maybe I can punch them back. But if Jess just taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, Tim, do you want a cup of coffee? You know, I don't want to accidentally, like, punch her in the face, do I? Or if my kids run up to me, I don't want to accidentally kick them away as a reflex. You can kind of develop self-defense mechanisms that work a bit over time uh, and you end up getting in a bit of trouble for that. Don't worry, I was never good enough to actually do that. So if you tap me on the shoulder, the chances of you getting punched in the face are more from my clumsiness than my reflexes. But we all have self-defense mechanisms, don't we? We, we all have those, those things that are designed to protect us. Maybe not, you know, uh, punches and kicks... Uh, but self-defense mechanisms that might protect us from other people in other ways, from the words they say, from the things they do, from the harm they might cause. We develop these things to protect us. 
But sometimes, like the punches and kicks, they might work a bit over time and protect us from good things. And that can be a big problem, right? Especially if those self-defense mechanisms actually are protecting us from God. We might have self-defense mechanisms that make us hold God at arm's length, where we don't let him into our lives because we have these things that were initially designed to protect us, but they're actually holding God away. And that is not good for us at all. It's obviously not good for us to hold uh, the one who offers us life in Jesus at arm's length. That will cause us more harm than good, both for those who follow Jesus and for those who don't yet follow him. And maybe as I talk about them, you're already thinking, yeah, I, I do have these things in my life that just naturally make me hold God at arm's length. That, that mean I, I don't want to engage with him or the message of Christianity. Things that, that were once designed to protect you now actually hold God away. Now, you might be aware of them, you might not be, but either way, Acts 28 warns us against these defence mechanisms. It warns us against uh, these things that work overtime and hold God at arm's length. And so I think because we all have sin in our hearts and sin in our lives and we all got some kind of defence mechanism, Acts 28 is coming for all of us this morning. It'll have something to say to us all. But Acts 28, it's a little bit of an odd chapter, right? It's it's the very end of the book of Acts. It's the last chapter, and and it is an ending of sorts, but also it it just kind of isn't. There's some things that aren't resolved at the end of Acts 28. I'll come back in a little bit to how it isn't an ending, but for now, let me show you how it is, because it does conclude some of the things that Acts has been talking about. Because what we see in Acts 28 is the gospel arrives at Rome. And that's really significant. It's been a long journey for Paul to get there. You all heard storms, hurricanes, viper attacks. All the way back in chapter 19, Paul decided to go to Rome. Paul has had two visions where God has told him that he will go to Rome. And finally, he's here. He's made it to Rome. Through all that suffering and all that hardship and all that geez, will I actually get there before I die? He's finally here. And Paul's arrival in Rome actually fulfills, to some extent, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Remember I said it earlier, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, Rome isn't the end of the earth. It's actually kind of like the centre of the earth at that point. But here's the thing, if you can get an idea happening in Rome, if you can get it to take off and have a life of its own in Rome, it's going to spread out to the ends of the earth. So it's actually really strategic for Paul to go to Rome because he goes to Rome, spreads the gospel there, he knows it'll go out. You know, all roads lead to Rome. Well, the opposite is true. All roads lead out from Rome. And so you get your idea there. And the way Luke concludes his letter, it's like the gospel got to Rome... And the rest is history. Of course, if it's here, it's going to go out to the ends of the earth. So there's a real sense that as the gospel gets here, as Paul gets to Rome, that, that idea of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to the ends of the earth, it's finally happening. It's going to come about. And so this is a great gospel victory. The gospel is in Rome where it will go to the ends of the earth. Luke can finish Acts 
with Paul in Rome because he knows what's going to happen after that. And now that Paul is in Rome, he does what he always does when he gets to a new city. He preaches the gospel. This time he's under arrest, so he doesn't go to the synagogue or to the marketplace or whatever. Instead, he invites people to come to his home. He has the kind of freedom where he can invite people to his home and and he can speak to them, but he can't travel around the city. And so he invites the Jewish leaders to his home and despite his chains, he preaches the gospel to them. And the reason why I think he is so strategic in going to the Jews first, he always does it. He always goes to the Jews first. But particularly here it's important is because it's the Jews in Jerusalem, remember last week, they arrested him and they put him on trial. It's their charges against Paul, which is the reason why Paul's in Rome at all. And so Paul is concerned that the Jews in Rome understand Paul's side of the story before they hear, or if they have heard, the other side from the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, it turns out they haven't. They've received no reports. No one's come and told them news. But Paul wants to prove his innocence to them first. But as he does that, he takes the opportunity to share the gospel. And I think as, as, we, as Paul shares the gospel, we see a bunch of things which he always does as he preaches. Let me show you three of them. First, Paul is humble and respectful and is loving as he preaches the word. He, he speaks with affections. Verse 17, he addresses the Jews, my brothers... He's never met them before, but he's brothers with them. He loves them. He wants them to know Jesus. He doesn't speak as if they're enemies. In fact, he he even goes on to say, I'm not even going to bring a charge against you. Paul would have every right to bring a charge against Jews because they kind of have falsely accused him and caused him all this suffering and he's a Roman citizen and they aren't. Paul has every right to do it, but he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I love you. Verse 19, he will bring no charge against them. Paul speaks with love and respect and honour to those who he preaches to. Secondly, Paul, he reasons and he explains. We spoke about this a fair bit last week, so I'm not going to go into it very deeply. If you want to catch up on that, jump on our website, you can find the sermon there. But he knows that the resurrection is true and reasonable, Acts 26, And so he reasons and he persuades and he convinces. He doesn't use uh, fancy ways of speaking to trick people. He doesn't manipulate. He lays things out as they are. He argues and persuades. Because Paul knows uh, faith in Jesus isn't a place where you leave your brain at the door. It's something that you engage in thinking about and reasoning with. And yes, the Holy Spirit will work in your life but he works through our reasoning, through a message, through persuasion. And so as we think about our evangelism, I think persuasion is a helpful way to think about it. We don't just lay the gospel message out and go, I'm done, Jesus died for you, see you later. No, we persuade. We show people why it's true and good. We convince them that this is the truth and that they ought to trust in Jesus. The third thing is, uh, and Paul always does this when he preaches, is he warns people. Again, Paul doesn't just give them the gospel message. Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you, you should trust in him. There's always an edge. There's always a pointy part to the gospel that Paul preaches. He warns people what the consequences are 
if they don't believe. Paul doesn't just say, this is nice, go and believe it. No, no, he says, if you don't believe, this is what will happen to you. And here we see, in Acts 28, another warning that Paul gives the Jews. And this is a particular uh, poignant warning, I think, because he chooses a warning that has already been given to the Jews from Isaiah chapter 6, which is why we had it read out earlier. And so if you have a look at verse uh, 25 to 27, we see it in there. I'll start from 25. Paul says to the Jews, his audience, the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. What's Paul trying to say there? What is his warning? What is he warning the Jews against? Well, he's saying, don't have the same reaction your ancestors had. When when God gave his message to the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah preached to them, don't act like your forefathers did to Isaiah. They ignored Isaiah. They didn't hear, they didn't see, they didn't listen. They were cut off, sent into exile, because they ignored Isaiah's warning. Now, Paul says that there was a problem that stopped them from hearing. It wasn't simply that they just wanted to ignore. No, there was a deep issue within the Jewish forefathers that stopped them from hearing. And Paul says, don't be like them. Don't have the same problem as them. What is that problem? Verse 27. For this people's heart has become calloused. For this people's heart has become calloused. Israel have calloused hearts. It is a heart issue. It's not simply that they can't see or can't hear. It's that they don't want to see and don't want to hear because there's an issue in their heart. And so they don't heed the warning of Isaiah. And Paul's saying, don't have calloused hearts like Israel once had. Have soft hearts. So what does it mean to have a calloused heart? What is a calloused heart? What did God mean? What does Isaiah mean? What does Paul mean? Well, what is a callous? Callous, it's a defence mechanism, isn't it? It's a defence mechanism. For those that uh, work all day with their hands, you'll develop calluses on your hands. Uh, Thickened skin that protects you from where wear and tear is. Use a hammer all day. You'll get calluses where the hammer rubs against your skin so that your hands aren't destroyed. It's thick and it becomes dull to the touch. You can't feel very well through the calluses. So, you know, tradies, labourers, guitar players, they'll get calluses on the tips of their fingers. Have a look at your hands. Does anyone here have any calluses on their hands? Any out the back? Mike's got calluses because he works hard. That's right. Yeah, my, my hands are too soft. Uh, um, I'm too used to typing on the keyboard. It's it a bit too soft to make calluses. But I used to get lots of calluses on my feet because I never wore shoes. I hated wearing shoes. I, I just, for me, footwear was optional. And uh, especially during summer, footwear was optional. And so with like hot sands and hot road, just by the time you're walking over all those things for a long time, my feet developed these calluses, thick skin that stopped my feet get burnt. That meant I didn't feel the heat as much. My senses were dulled and then I started dating Jess and she thought the most offensive thing that someone could possibly do is not wear shoes. And so now my feet are very soft again. 
Which is too bad because if, if it's summertime and, and one of my boys needs help in the surf and the sand's hot, well, now I can't go anymore. Jess, you're going to have to go and rescue them. My feet are too soft and it's your fault. So calluses, they're a defense mechanism. They protect you. Thick skin that actually dulls the senses. But what about the heart, right? So a calloused heart. What is, it, what is the heart? What does it mean to have a calloused heart? Well, in the Bible, the heart actually is used a little bit differently to how we might talk about the heart today. Often when we're talking about the heart, we're talking about our our emotions and the things we love and the things we're passionate about. But in the Bible, when it talks about the heart, it actually kind of lumps in our concept of mind and heart together. The heart is is the centre of the being. Everything we are flows from the heart, our thinking, our decisions, our rationality, our desires, our will our affections and our emotions and our feelings, they all spring from the heart. And so when Paul talks about a calloused heart, he's saying there is some sense in which people can have a a thick layer of protection around the very centre of their being that dulls them to things outside themselves. And and the particular context here is it, it dulls them to the message of God. It dulls them to God. It's holding God back, not letting him into the being and into the heart, not listening to him and engaging with him, holding him away. A calloused heart stops us from understanding and experiencing spiritual truths. You know, when we hear spiritual truths, we're meant to leap with joy at their goodness. We're meant to feel them. But a calloused heart can't. It has become dull to them. A callous heart hears that God loves us so deeply that he sent his only son to die for us, take the punishment we deserve, and just says, eh, so what? The callous heart hears about the horror of sin, how offensive it is to our creator, and goes, not that big a deal. It's not so bad. The callous heart hears that we are to long for the glory of heaven. We will be with our saviour forever. No more tears or pain or suffering. And hears that we ought to actually live in light of that reality and goes, life here is pretty good. So what? The calloused heart doesn't leap for joy at these truths, doesn't feel what it ought to at these truths. It has become thick and dull and dying. Here's the problem though. We're all sinners. And so we all have some kind of calluses on our hearts. Our sin naturally wants to protect us from the truths of God because we're selfish and inward looking. And so we all have calluses. The question is, are you aware of them? Are you aware of the calluses on your heart, your particular calluses? Because there's a bunch of different calluses you could have. I'm going to talk about two examples of calluses today. There's more I could talk about. But here's two that I think are common with us and with our community. Also calluses that we see in the book of Acts as well. So we're just going to do two today. The first one is the don't mess with my life callus. Don't mess with my life callus. This callus says, I want to live my own way. I've got my own dreams. I've got my own desires. 
Uh, I've got my own relationships, my own lifestyle, my own passion, my own goals, and I don't want anyone to mess with that. I don't want anyone to come in and tell me how to live my life. Don't mess with my life. Now, there's something of that that I think rings true in all of us because we don't like being told what to do. I know that I feel that way a lot. Someone tells me what to do. Even like before I even listen to the merit of the idea, I'm just like, I don't want to do that. Don't tell me how to live my life. It's a callous that we have. We see it in the Jews. We see it in the Jews uh, uh, throughout Paul's arrest and trials in, in chapters 21 to 26. But also, actually, I think all through the book of Acts. They don't accept that Jesus rose from the dead because, I think in a large part, because of this callous, the don't mess with my life callous. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, that means Jesus really is the Messiah. And they would have to undergo that kind of radical life transformation we spoke about last week, that Paul had undergone. Their whole life would have to change. The the kind of authority and the power structures they have would change. The way they lived would change. It's not about following the law to be accepted with God. It's about trusting Jesus to be accepted with God. And they don't want their life messed with. And so they reject the news that Jesus rose back from the grave. Their callous is the don't mess with my life callous. Is this your callous? Is this the callous in your life that is keeping God at arm's length? Is this the callous that has dulled you to spiritual truth? Is your big priority in life centred on you and what you want to do? Your work, your relationships, your goals, your family, your lifestyle, your whatever. Do you hate it when people tell you how to live your life or even just suggest it? Like I said, I think this is me. I think this is a callous that I struggle with. In fact, I know it's a callous that I struggle with. We need to get over this callous. We need to let God in and speak into our lives. If we let this callous continue to hold God away, we're destined for destruction and judgment. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, this... This callous is, you've got to understand that you were doubly owned. Your life is not your own twice over. Have you heard that language of doubly owned? God has created you, he's made you, he's given you life. The only reason you take every breath is because God allows it and makes that happen. He owns you because he made you. But also he owns you because he saved you. If you're a follower of Jesus... Your life is owned by God because he created you, but also because he rescued you from death and destruction, because he sent his son to die for you and rescue you. And so you're owned twice over. Your life is not your own. This callous flies in the face of everything God has done for you. And so you need to pray, ask for help, confess, and give your life to Jesus. My life is not my own, so I don't get to tell you not to mess with it, God. You get to tell me how to live my life, and I ought to live that way. We need that kind of humility. The second callous is the I'm a good person callous. I'm a good person callous. Now, if God sent his son to die for sin, his one and only son, God the son, on the cross, 
dying. Now, doesn't that tell you something about our sin, about how bad it is, how offensive to our God it is? If, if there was any other way for God to deal with sin, don't you think he would have before he sent his son to die in our place? But the people with the, I'm a good person, callous, they don't think they're that bad. Sure, sure, I might have some rough edges that might need to be, you know, pruned off. And, and Jesus could probably help me with that. He was a good teacher and he's a good example. When he died, obviously he's showing his love for others and maybe I should love others too. But I can take it from there because I'm not that bad. But as soon as I suggest that you need a substitute because you can't do it yourself, well... No, no, I'm not that bad. I don't, I don't need someone to do it for me. I can do it. My, I'm not that bad. I, you know, I'll just take off these rough edges and I'll be good. I don't need a substitute. No way. If you think you aren't that bad, you won't see a need for a saviour. Right? If you don't realise that you're drowning, why would you want a surf lifesaver to come and rescue you? If you don't realise that you're in danger, why would you want someone to come and take you out of your situation? If you have the, I'm not that bad callous, you will find it so difficult to turn to Jesus and be saved. You, you will hear the message of sin and be like, I'm not that bad. You'd hear the message of Jesus dying and be like, I don't need that. And again, you'll be on the path to destruction and death. This callous stops us from seeing the heaven reality, the sorry, spiritual reality of the offence that our sin causes to a holy God. And, and, you know, in Isaiah 6, we saw how holy God is. Remember, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah sees that glory and says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. God is holy and our sin is offensive to him. And if your callous is that I'm not that bad, you will never believe that and you'll never turn to Jesus and be saved. And so again, you need to turn to God in prayer and ask that he would remove this callous from you. You might need to confess. You might want to ask other Christians around you to pray with you, pray for you, walk with you in this. Because unless you get over this callous, you will never have the appropriate joy or or gratitude at the forgiveness of your sin. But you know what, as bad as these two calluses and and all the other calluses are, as dull as they make us to spiritual truth, as hard as it is to get through a callus, I actually expect that today God will soften calluses. I, I expect that today God will even remove some calluses from our hearts. I expect that God will do this work today and every day because of the book of Acts because of the way the book of Acts ends. Remember when I said Acts 28 is kind of like an ending, but it kind of isn't. It's an ending because Paul's in Rome, the gospel's there, it's going to go out. Paul's proclaiming the gospel. But it's not an end as well, isn't it? Look at verse 28. Acts 28, 28. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. There's a great expectation there, isn't it? that there will be continued gospel fruit, that it will continue to go out for the rest of this age. It's not said here, but the assumption is the gospel will continue to go out until Jesus returns. 
We are living in an age of salvation where the Gentiles will listen. Yes, there is um, a sense in this chapter that it will continue. Yes, Paul's in Rome, but he hasn't stood trial. What's going to happen there? There's all these loose threads that haven't come together yet. And I think Luke does that on purpose to show us this is the age of salvation. And you know what? We're living proof of that. If, if Paul got to Rome and preached in Rome and the gospel didn't go out and the Gentiles weren't going to listen, none of us would be here today, right? Because someone has preached the gospel to us and we listened. Might be your parents, might be a church you grew up in, might be a friend, it might be... someone has proclaimed to you We are living proof that we live in the age of salvation, that this gospel story is unfinished. You might be going, you know, I want an Acts 29. I want to know what happens next. What happens to Paul? Where does he go? Who does he speak to? How does the gospel go out? We don't need Acts 29 because we're living in Acts 29. The next chapter of Acts is the rest of the age of salvation. It is here today. It is what we do tomorrow. It is the gospel going out in our lives. And there is a great expectation that God will save people, that there will be victory, that people will turn, that their calluses will be softened and removed and they will come to rejoice at spiritual truth. You know, there will be opposition. We've seen that through the book of Acts and that that will continue People will reject the gospel, as some of them do here in Acts 28. Some of the Jews go out not believing, some do. But our God is a big God, right? He's a big God. He's unstoppable. God will continue to rescue people. God will keep doing his work of bringing the Gentiles, the non-Jews, into his kingdom. And you know what? He's still, still bringing Jews into his kingdom as well. We know that this work continues today because the sun came up this morning. Although it was a bit hard to see it. But the sun came up yesterday and the day before, right? It's nice and warm and sunny. But the sun came up this morning and that tells us the age of salvation continues. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The age of salvation continues because God is patient. Patiently bringing people to himself. He wants everyone to turn and come to him. And his gospel will turn people back to himself. And so every day the sun rises is another day that God will cause people to repent, that God will soften calluses, and God will use you and I to do it. His, his people on this earth who are the witnesses who are going to the edge of the earth, the ends of the earth, that is us. And so who will it be today? Who is it today that is going to have their calluses removed, that's going to turn to Jesus and be saved? Who is it? Is it you? Is it someone in your family or a friend? What about tomorrow? Is it your boss? Is it a teacher? Is it the random guy you talk to at the bus stop? This is the age of salvation. We can live expectantly that God will save. And so let's live expectantly. Let's encourage one another to live expectantly. And we see Paul live expectantly. The very last verse of the book of Acts. 
He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that this is the age of salvation. Help us to live now expectant that you will bring people to see Jesus as Lord, to know that he has been raised from the dead and trust in him as their saviour. Father, I pray for us here today in this room that you will have softened calluses, you will have removed calluses so that we might rejoice at this spiritual truth. I pray that as we go out, we would live expectant lives, boldly proclaiming the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.